as you're turning to 1 Timothy, I want to say with a statement that sometimes things are so bad organizationally that it's the right thing to do to leave. Sometimes things are so bad that the right thing to do is to leave. John Gresham Machem, a late theologian, left Princeton Theological Seminary, and he with some others established what is now known as Westminster Theological Seminary in 1929 due to the theological differences and direction of Princeton Seminary at the time. There was just no way to save it, these group of theologians discovered. Princeton Theological Seminary, founded in 1812, had been an upholder of biblical theology, but things drastically changed early in the 20th century. It began to adopt a nuanced, unbiblical stances on on common things that Christians had held for thousands of years. And this led to a controversy known as the fundamentalist-modernist controversy that pitted conservative theologians like Machen against more liberal theologians at Princeton. Now, Majum and others believe that Princeton had come to compromise its commitment to biblical orthodoxy in that the seminary was no longer suitable as an institution for training pastors. They couldn't sign off on what they were asked to teach. They also believe that the seminary was moving away from its historic commitment to what their holding was of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This confession, at that point 400 years old, that taught summaries of doctrine in Scripture, a statement of faith that had been adopted for so long, now they were being asked to teach against it. And as a result, Machum and others left Princeton and established Westminster Seminary, and it quickly became a a leading institution, and in fact still is today, for training conservative reform pastors and theologians in the United States. And it remains an important institution as an example of sometimes things get so bad that the right thing to do is to leave. Now, sometimes things get so bad that the right thing to do is to stay and to stand against the erring tide. In the 1990s, uh, the theologian Albert Moeller became the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. At the time, the seminary was known for theological liberalism and had moved away from the traditional commitment of biblical inerrancy and literal, the literal resurrection of Christ. I think you've heard me say it before, but they would take a poll from incoming students to the seminary where they would come into the seminary. It's a a three-year professional degree. They would come into the uh, seminary, and 87% believed in the literal resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's sad, as it should be 100%, but by the time people graduated, that number was just under 60% actually believed in the literal resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, one of the, one of the, very uh, important students who later graduated and later became a president of the Southern Baptist Convention encountered a professor on his first day of class who asked him, do you believe in the literal resurrection of heaven? And the student said, yes. And this professor said, well, with enough time here, you'll get over that. The seminary had become everything that it was not supposed to be. And so in came Al Mohler, who a conservative theologian on his own right, set to change the direction of the seminary and was granted power to do so and bring it back to its founding confession, which is explained in in their case in the articles or in the abstract of principles. He began by requiring all faculty members to sign a statement affirming their belief in biblical inerrancy and the, the abstract of principles that they had previously signed their name to. He had them sign their name again, and this would later lead to a dismissal and resignation of over 80% of the faculty. 
people who would not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, people who would not believe in the death of Christ, people who would not believe in the differences between man and women in the, as image bearers of God. This led to a dismissal of so many people, and, but later Muller was seen as a helpful initiator and restructured the seminary's curriculum to ensure that it was firmly grounded in theology and biblical orthodoxy. He hired new faculty members who were committed to these principles because the assets that, that this convention had was worthy of holding on to. His efforts were controversial. Some accused him of being too rigid and dogmatic, and in fact, he even had to let go of professors who had taught him in this school, while others praised him for standing up for biblical values in the face of theological drift. But despite controversy, Muller's leadership at Southern Seminary and with full disclosure, I was a student there and a friend of Dr. Moeller. The seminary is now known as a leader in training conservative pastors and theologians. They graduate about 1,000 pastors a year, and it's played a significant role in the resurgence of what is known modernly as the gospel-centered movement and Christ-centered theology. So in sum, as, as noted by his inauguration address to the faculty and student body, sometimes a Christian's job is to not just do something but stand there and fight for what the Bible says. Now, my sermon this morning is the initial instruction and charge given to Timothy, the Apostle Paul's fellow brother, pastor, and disciple. The greater context is Paul is sending Timothy instruction to help a church that's frankly kind of veered off or in many ways has gone wild. And his initial instruction to Timothy is surprising. Timothy is charged to go into this church and to confront false teachers and to confront them in their wayward doctrine. Now, the book of 1 Timothy is, uh, surprisingly, an aggressive and helpful book, helping Christians through questions like, what should a local church look like? What should a local church do? How should a local church be ordered, organized, and structured, and How should a local church focus its resources? How can you and I relate to one another and life within a local congregation? And within this book, you'll you'll find both description and prescription for for church and ministry in the local congregation. When When I say ministry, I mean all of us ministering as Christians together. That is, we find not only description of what life would be like in the local church some 30 years after Christ ministered and died and was raised from the dead and ascended on high in the first century, we, we not only see a description, but we also have here commands for a local congregation just a few years after Jesus lived. In other words, we see here we have both mandates and directives and instructions for how Christians in a local congregation are to live and to serve God together. Now, last week I gave some categories, gave three categories about thinking through churches. One can keep the gospel, hold the gospel, but but modernize or change in their minds the methods or processes. And one can change the the message of the gospel, but hold on to the same methods as time passed. And seeing the prescribed methods for, for sanctifying Christians and reaching people with the gospel. And then there's a third category a biblical church would, would hold on to the old-time message of the gospel and hold on to the, the prescribed method of living in light of the gospel together, obeying the prescribed methods and message as timeless, trusting that when God gave His 
ordination of how the church ought to love, live, and worship together, that that lasts even till today. So what do you do when an operating church changes the message of the gospel? It's the, it's the context here. What do you do when, the, when a local church changes the message of the gospel? Not patterns, not this or that, not the carpet's different or the style's different or the doors are different, entrances are different, but what happens when, when they begin to preach another gospel? teach false doctrine. What do you do and how? That's what Paul charges Timothy with an answer in. So today my my sermon will be from verses 3 through 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And in these verses, Paul has a lot to say. He tells Timothy how to engage in these false teachers within the church. And I think the layout's pretty, pretty clear from the text. So an outline of my sermon, the text is going to be pretty obvious. What do you do with false teaching? Well, first you confront it in verses 3 through 4. In verse 5, you persuade it. So the second point, you persuade the false teaching. And then third, you understand it. The, his, his words to Timothy, Paul's words to Timothy are though also for us today. What do we do when we encounter the gospel changing within a local congregation? Well, I think the first thing you do is from verses 3 and 4, you confront the false teachers, and you confront the false teaching. Look at verses 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says, I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculations rather than furthering the stewardship from God, which is by faith. These verses give a backstory in many ways to Paul's remarks, the the instruction threefold in in these three different categories, but it's first grounded in the, the context here. And at some point, Paul was around this region before he became imprisoned and after he became imprisoned. He he knew these people. He knew this body. And there were by by the text, some men, it says, and I think it's clear that it's within the church context, not outside of the church context, some men who were teaching strange doctrines to God's people. Now, some translations, you might have them in front of you, and a translation might say false doctrine or strange doctrine. I prefer the strange doctrine because I think false doctrine doesn't capture the assault of what these teachers were doing. They were They were veering off track. They were teaching strange things, anti-gospel things. Not in the sense that, you know, an answer might be wrong, that's wrong, let's go back to the right answer, but that things were being confused, manipulated, or even covered up and and expanded beyond what the gospel's teaching actually had. So, in the sense that it became weird, it became different. Well, different from what? What? What was strange about this doctrine that Paul was telling Timothy to confront? I think that, that there's an answer to this. If you've got the Bible, I want you to turn to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy chapter, or of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and go to verse 3. I think it actually gives us a little bit of an answer here of what he's talking about. These strange doctrines. What's that mean? It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words those words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. Then he says he's conceited and understanding and nothing but having a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. But basically what he's saying is anything that's not the gospel, that is strange doctrine. 
This doctrine, strange doctrine, is, is different or strange because it breaks away from sound words. It's, it's errant. It's wayward. It's teaching that results in errant and wayward living. The, the fundamental characteristic of this strange teaching is that it doesn't agree with sound words, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is, is signifying or telling Timothy to watch out for. This is, and, and I think in many ways, this is one of the most encouraging things about following Christ. Back up a second. Being a Christian, submitting yourself to God's way, you can have confidence in that God actually gives you the way that he wants to live. You don't have to live a life in confusion or speculation or, man, I really hope I understand it, but what happens if my life evolves or changes over time? Does that mean the gospel changes? No, no, no. Here's what uh, one theologian says, Richard Phillips. It says, any doctrine which is different from true doctrine is false doctrine which is really encouraging to, to hear and to think about. Any doctrine that is different from true doctrine is false doctrine. There's only one right theology. Every other theology is wrong. There is only one orthodoxy. Everything then is heterodoxy. Although the course of the church must give answers to new questions and challenges, he goes on to say, that arise in every age, we must understand that God has given us truth that we can aspire to. And I think that's incredibly encouraging to hear from others about the Bible because, friend, you don't have to be in fear of what you believe changing or evolving over time. You can continually point yourself to the Savior, to the truth of God's Word as as that foundational truth that reorients your life. It's not like the changes that happen in technology where why, why do I have to update my iPhone? And then it changes all. I, I just got comfortable where all these apps are. Why is it changing? So I have to relearn everything else. No, it's not like that. There is, there is a foundational absolute truth that God gives us from his very words and recognizing that anything outside of that is wrong. You may change as you grow in submission to God's truth. Hopefully all of us, by the time we reach a very old age, are much more conformed into the likeness of the Son because we've been submitting ourselves that the truth which is given to us in the Scriptures, God's truth, orthodox theology, is foundational. After Brooks, uh, my wife's uh, paternal grandfather, passed away in 2018, Brooks' dad and uh, Brooks' uncle went through the various things belonging to her grandpa. There were, there were books, there were knickknacks, there was a garage full of tools that Brooks' brothers beat me to, uh, things that he had made along the way, but Brooks' dad really wanted uh, one of Roy's Bibles. This man loved God. Roy loved God. He cherished his word. He taught Sunday school for decades and, and really loved learning about God from his words. All he wanted to talk to people about, he would save articles and pass them to his sons on things that he was learning along the way. And uh, beyond his dad's Bible, though, being wonderfully and sentimental. So you can imagine as a son, you want your dad's Bible because it, because it means something to you. And, but beyond one of Roy's Bibles being a, a reminder, a sentimental reminder of Roy, that Bible now passed down is actually way more significant than even the significance that it has sitting on a coffee table. Because, because those, those 50-year-old pages speak of the same eternal truth that Brooks' dad believes. Uh, friends, get this. It sits there today in a TV room and a coffee table. And sure, it's a, it's a monument uh, of Roy and Roy's love. But beyond that, it serves as a, as a monument of absolute truth 
that Roy believed, and by God's grace, Steve believed, and by God's grace, my wife believes. And every time I see it, when I go over to their house to get free food, I'm reminded of, of, of that is a sign that, that what God has said to his people is not something that's just passed down in generations, but something that exists eternally. And Timothy was charged to confront people because they were teaching false doctrine. They were going against that book, you could say which be encouraged. That means that there is true and narrow and exclusive doctrine that our God has poured out to us. Now, maybe, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you look at this text and you think through it, and you recognize that there seems to be, seems to be a little bit of tension here, and you think, wait, I thought Paul was talking here. Paul was given commands to Timothy and to the church and to us that we must follow this in the same way that we would follow Christ's words here. But, but you're saying, Paul's saying that True teaching and sound doctrine comes from Christ, yet Paul is not Christ. Am I right? Yes, Paul is not Christ. So what's up with that? What's up with Paul having these words and saying, follow me, do this? And he's saying that you're in sin if you don't follow the words of Christ. We have to understand that Paul is speaking here as an apostle. And when he speaks, he speaks with, get this, the very authority of Christ's speech. So as the prophets in the Old Testament spoke the very words of the Lord, when they said, run, you should run. When they said, repent, you should repent. In the very same way that when the apostles speak, they're speaking the very words of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 3, Paul says of himself that Christ is speaking in me. Now, a lot of us would be very careful to not say things like that, right? Like, when I'm saying something, I'm saying this is the words of the Lord, and it better be the words of the Lord if I'm going to say it like that. Now, how do you know what Christ's words are? Paul is saying that what he's saying are Christ's words to this church. How do you know what Christ's words are? Well, I think logically and biblically, you know what Christ's words are by actually listening to Christ's own apostles. This, I think, is what is meant in true form when the early church was described practicing Christianity in in a particular way by when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, as the apostles would explain Christ's words to those churches, as Christ's words would unpack the teachings of the Old Testament, as the Old Testament was unpacking the very words of the Lord. You You can imagine reading what Christ's words are like by reading from Genesis to Revelation. So when the scriptures say that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that means that the scriptures are there breathed out by God and worthy of our following. That's why Jesus spoke the way he did to Paul. In Acts 26, Jesus is speaking here. Let me just quote it. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus says to Paul, for I have appeared to you, Paul, for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So I'm giving you something now, and I'll, to Paul, I'll continually speak to you so that you can guide others. Jesus said to another that Paul was his chosen voice for this particular era in history. So when, when Paul speaks to you, friend, in our scriptures, it, it is to be heard as the very words of Christ. And this, in many ways, is a rebuke, so kind of getting into the context of this passage. This, in many ways, is a rebuke of of a modern movement, kind of crystallized in like 2007, but certainly has been going on for a long time, a modern movement called the Red Letter Bible Readers, Red Letter Christians. 
highly influential people like Jim Wallace and Shane Claiborne and Tony Campalo. These guys teach and write and have followers, and sadly, what they're doing, I believe, is they're misconstruing Christ to people and misapplying His Scripture to reality. Their, their fields of influence are, are teaching that encompasses, in many ways, we see people living all over. Now, not to dump on them, they, they are wrong in what they're teaching, but they're wrong in not who they are, they're wrong in how they're reading the Scriptures, because they're ignoring what is in black, even though that what is in their Bible is in red. They're ignoring the law. They're misconstruing the law, which is very much the context of our passage here. They're ignoring what's in what's called the New Testament letters. They're not wanting to deal with that kind of stuff because you know what we need to do? We just need to, we just need to understand and see what Jesus said. We just need to see what Christ said. Let's just look at the red letters. And you can see how that's a logical pursuit and wanting to be clear and what they feel is clear, but what that does is it discounts what is also clear because it's the very words of Christ, the very words of God that inspired these inscripturated texts. Also, this passage is a rebuke to those who say things like, in the midst of theological discussion, I just want to focus on what Jesus said and other stuff gets confusing. Friend, people who say things like that are some of the kinds of false teachers that this text is talking about. Those who ignore, those who misconstrue, those who wrongly teach the law and commands of Christ and ultimately add confusion to everyone while coming across as spiritual or pious. After all, who can, who can go against someone who says, I just want to focus on Jesus and not worry about other stuff in the Bible? But it's not just Paul who's like this in authority. So Paul is speaking as one with authority. All other apostles were like that. Jesus promised to send the apostles, his spirit, to lead them in all truth. He said this in John chapter 14. And promised them in John chapter 16 to bring them remembrances of everything he taught them. You can just think of this practically. How many of us pray right before a math test or an English test that everything that was previously written on the board, I would remember? Maybe even in college, I don't know why they didn't do this in high school, but in college you were allowed like one sheet of paper. And so some of us became very good friends with people at Kinko's so we could really shrink down so many things on one piece of paper that we could take into the test and then realize that we still can't remember all the things that we were taught all semester long. It's amazing. All teachers do is give you the answers all semester long. And I, and I pray that God would help me that the night before I take a test. And what Jesus is saying here is that he would send out his apostles and they could have encouragement that he would send a spirit in such a way to remind them of everything that he taught them. If you want to know Jesus' words, know God's words. If we want to be a people who are continually shaped and transformed into the likeness of God's glory, we need to know, in this case, the apostles' words for our church. 1 John chapter 4 says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. So they're talking about apostles here. We are from God. Whoever knows God will listen to us. Whoever, does, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Meaning if you're countering, going against, teaching against what we have in the scriptures, you are not of God, this apostle says. You are living in error. 
to your eyes, back to 1 Timothy 1, to teach different doctrines means you are teaching against or outside of the authoritative apostolic standard. Paul says you depart from Christ's words when you depart from the apostles' teaching. If you want to know more of Jesus' words, then read the black letters too. Now, in Paul's day, that existed in oral form, beginning and it was beginning to be printed and passed around. But today, for us, we have absolutely zero excuse to know what Christ has said to us because of what we so commonly have in our hands, the Word of God inscripturated for us in a book. So strange doctrine is anything that is not against, not in, or not from our Scriptures. Now, some of you are, uh, have possibly been part of a religious group, maybe even a Christian group, where it was wrong or you had to take, uh, it was wrong to do certain particular things that you had to subscribe to, or even you had to take a vow in that church to not do certain things, a certain set of things. And I don't want to list examples. I thought about them. And I don't want to list examples because I don't want to dog on people who thought what they were doing was following Christ by hearing to man-made, possibly morally societal, helpful rules. You might, well, God, I just want to list some of them. But you might have subscribed to things previously that were actually man-made rules in order to have a partnership with God and His gospel. Now, friends, whatever the reason those outside of the Bible rules were presented to you, for you, or whatever was presented as a necessary vow in order for you to have partnership with God and His gospel, what Paul is saying here is that's really strange. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, the, is Him transforming our, heart, our hearts from deadness to life. We were, we were brought from the bondage of slavery, placed on a, on a platform of freedom and grace and mercy, so that we have freedom from these man-made rules in order to live in light of God's amazing grace. And so to put other man-made rules on top of us in such a way that we, if we just do those man-made rules, then God will love us more, God will cherish us more. Paul is saying, that's strange. That's not understanding the gospel at all. Now, certainly God does give us the law. Remember, the law was given to Moses after they came out of the Exodus. So it's not like they were freed from the tablets of the Ten Commandments, but they were, they were freed and then given structure in order so that they would worship God properly and obey God well and live life in, in under God's grace and mercy. But to then take God's law and to add things to God's law or to remove things from God's law and say, if you just live according to, you know, my rules, then you can flourish in Christ-likeness. Paul is saying, Timothy, get in there and show them down. Stop that man from speaking. Get in front of him before the congregation and saying, he's not preaching the gospel. Because the Bible doesn't say so. So, for example, don't hear me say that. And those of you who, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I kept thinking of like, okay, what are, what are extremes that people are going to take away from this? You know, you've got to live inside the gospel and not add anything to. So, for those of you who go to a private school and are, and are told to wear a uniform and have a dress code, which public schools have dress codes too. We all remember the, the rule of the dollar above the knee or whatever. You can't wear short shorts which then their baggy shorts were a thing, and now short shorts are a thing, so I don't know how they do that. But if you're called to wear a certain uniform, 
I, I, I do, I'm actually telling you, don't go up to your headmaster and say, hey, this is unbiblical. You're adding to the gospel. I can wear whatever I want. I, want you to, I need you to know, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's a school. It's not a fellowship of believers. Now, if our elders came out with a policy or, if, or you excluded people from maybe your small group or this fellowship, you voted against someone because they might wear something that you don't really like or they might have a certain hairdo that you don't really prefer or they might, they might even serve within a vocation that you don't really like and you hold that against them for fellowship and even go against them in fellowship, that, that friend, is what is called strange doctrine, strange theology. So with, he's talking to the context of believers who recognize, once again, we have nothing in common but the grace of God. And if we start to extrapolate that or add things to it, that's when we get into strange doctrine. So for reasons like this, Paul charges Timothy to remain in order to oppose false teachers, strange teachers who've clearly gotten a foothold in people's lives, anything apart from God's word there to be confronted. Now, some listen to this, and there's an objection coming to their heart, and they might even object and say, honestly, I'm not really interested in discussions like this. I, I just don't, like, can we get on to the rest of First Timothy? I don't really care about doctrinal issues and arguments. I'm going to avoid that. I, that's not, believe it or not, what I, what I look at YouTube and find these discussions between theologians. I'm just not that interested in doctrinal pursuit like this. We have elders for that who are tasked with doing this. We send people to seminary to deal with things like this. We have esteemed by Bible teachers or curriculum. We got Bible nerds. They can go to town against one another, but nah, not me. I, here we go, I just want to love Jesus. Sure. Fine. Nobody wants to get caught up in the pointless arguments about words, about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. That's not, hopefully that's not what godly theologians are doing. Paul will even warn against that in chapter 4, but but in another sense, the objection, I just want to love Jesus, I don't want to discuss theology or whatever, actually misses the mark. Sometimes the objection, I just want to love Jesus, actually comes from an apathy or an indifference to the Jesus that we see in God's Word. In many cases, in my experience, it's just masking a sinister motive. There's a very famous account on Instagram and Twitter, and I saw it maybe six months ago, of this, this farm girl, this cow girl, uh, who's frankly hilarious, and you know, I don't know, I don't have cows or farm animals, I just have a dog, and he sleeps there all day, but she's commenting on stuff, and she's funny, and she talks to kids, but her, her profile, her profile, you know, your, your profile should actually show who you are in many ways. You might say, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a business owner, or whatever. Her, her highly influential account openly, proudly shows her living a life outside of the boundaries of biblical sexuality. I'll just put it like that. You can imagine what that would say or what flag that would show. The other side of her profile says that she loves Jesus. So she lives in open rebellion of what's so clear in God's word, but how do you hate her? She loves Jesus. I don't want to get into doctrinal fidelity and stuff like that. I just want to love Jesus. See, here, someone loves Jesus. One side is saying she is unapologetically living an error of sound teaching of Scripture. And the other side, well, 1 John would say she doesn't know Jesus at all, if that's her Jesus. So the clarity of the gospel 
is not only at stake for people who would follow the gospel, but the clarity of the gospel is also for the Christians to enjoy and know the very one who they worship. Imagine me speaking to Brooke, which I do very often. Now, I love my wife. I'll say it to you. I'll even say it to her. I love my wife. Brooke, I love you. There you are. Okay. Looked at the wrong person. That got weird. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I love my wife. I'll even say it to her. But imagine me saying to Brooke, Brooke, I love you. And then imagine her start talking to me. And I say, wait, 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 wait. I cut her off and say, "I, I don't. I don't really care about what you're about to say. I don't care about your day. I don't need to know it. It's a burden to you. It doesn't need to be a burden to me. What I want you to know is that I love you. No, no, no. Don't go on. Don't talk. I love you. Stop speaking. I love you. Let me love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I don't want to figure you out. Too many things or rules or requests. I just want to love you. I love you. Don't talk. I love you. Now, what kind of love is that? Very much need counseling, wouldn't I? She would. I need a confrontation. What kind of love is that? It's not love at all, but it's actually hatred for her. Why? It's impossible to say that you love Jesus and be indifferent to the words of Jesus. If you don't love the words of Jesus, if they're not commands to you, if they're not the standard for you, Paul here says, is saying the apostolic words of Jesus then you don't love him. You can't divorce Christ from his words. It's how you know him. We cannot be indifferent about him and his words. And and that's why Paul is so earnest in 1 Timothy verse 3. He's saying, hey, Timothy, brother, elder, pastor, you're the guy. Stand them down. You're there. Confront them in their different doctrine. He gives them a charge. This is verse 4. Now, what happens if Timothy doesn't confront them? What if, what if he's just a little passive about this, or he just wants to go in there and do other things? Paul is telling me to go in there, confront false teachers, and what if it doesn't happen? These false doctrines, when, confront, when unconfronted, will ultimately, according to this word, lead to conjecture and speculation about, instead of furthering, the, they bring conjecture and speculation instead of furthering the stewardship of God, the administration of God, which is by faith. It's not sound doctrine that gets people arguing, but it's false or strange doctrine that horrifically gets them speculating. It's false doctrine that causes division in the fellowship and cuts people off from what they hear, what they need to hear, and that's the stewardship from God from faith. Remember, the devil in the garden didn't even express false doctrine. He raised speculation to Adam and Eve. He asked a question intending to confuse them, giving them a myth of who God was, which I think is what Paul is talking about, this stewardship of God by faith. This is the redemptive plan of salvation from God. What what do these people need? Not questions, but answers. The gospel is what they need, that they receive by faith, That, that Christ came into the world and died on the cross for sinners. And three days later, he was raised from the death and the grave for our eternal life. And anyone who believes in him, or to use the language of this text, has faith in him, is saved by him, is rescued by him in his plan, his administration, his stewardship from God. It's not sound doctrine that leads people away from that. It is strange doctrine 
that leads people away from that and gets them arguing about fruitless discussion points. What people need to hear is the administration and stewardship from God by faith. That's what the church is constantly needing to have within any of its ministries, the advancement of the stewardship of God by faith. Everything else leave to the, to the civic clubs to do. It's not sound doctrine that leads people away from that. It's false doctrine that leads people away, that getting, gets them to argue. What people need to hear is the stewardship from God by faith. And so Paul tells Timothy, brother, elder, pastor, remain, confront, oppose, fight for the gospel. Why? Because where false teaching goes unchecked, God's people are drastically in danger. It has is, it is well been said in various venues that all that's necessary for triumph, for the triumph of evil, is for good men to do nothing. Likewise, it's also said all that's necessary for a church to fall under attack, under the influence of false teaching, is for pastors, in this case, to lay low and not rock the boat and play politics and just focus on not telling people what truth is, not confronting them on what false reality is, but just encourage them. Good for you, man. I'm glad you read whatever book that was. Why? Because where false teaching goes unchecked, God's people are in danger. I was told a couple of years ago that my position as a pastor elder is to be someone like English royalty, a figurehead, a head of state, one that is not in the weeds of possibly controversial things, more of a statesman, you know, like a mayor in a community. Nothing against mayors and communities, but, but really it's the commissioners that, that work alongside one another because they're based on demographically based areas in the city or the county. And, and the mayor is to represent all people almost passively from afar and helping others to get along. Or, or maybe it's a head of state administering blessings on, on members of politics. You know, what, is, what does the king of England actually do? Well, kind of just going around and being the king of England. He doesn't get into the weeds of the politics of the day. He's not talking about you know, educational pursuits or taxation or what we do with our military. He, he's, he's back. We, we elect people from that based on demographically based settings. But that's not what elders and pastors are called to do. That's not in the Bible. It may be your preference, but that's based on a myth, not Scripture, based on endless genealogies, not Scripture. One duty of an elder amongst many is to contend in confrontation for the faith where necessary. Now, let me say something as an aside to those of you who are here and contemplate or are in or contemplate ministry. God willing, our church will have decades of people continually. We've had them in decades past and God willing, we'll have them decades in the future. We'll have people who seek to plant a church on the mission field, who seek to pastor an existing church, who seek to serve as an elder here or maybe an elder somewhere else if they move away, who seek to teach a, a woman's Bible study, who seek to constantly find others who don't know the gospel and tell them the gospel through evangelism. I'll just say it like this. If you're unwilling to confront strange doctrine, you are not fit for ministry. All you will encounter if someone says they worship the energy of mountains is a necessary pursuit of confrontation saying that will not leave you, lead you to paradise. All you're doing when your child comes home and ignores whatever false teaching they came up with or were prescribed, if you ignore them, that will not lead them by faith to the ways of God. 
I was reminded a, a year ago, um, someone who's not in our church corrected someone in our church because this person in our church was leading a, a Bible study and a, a wrong answer was given about God, about God's character in his scriptures. And so this woman corrected that woman. And then another woman came up to this woman and said, that was really unhelpful and dangerous for you to correct that woman. That, that makes this a place where people aren't free to say things. Now, in this person's case, freedom to say wrong things doesn't mean that you don't confront them. And I just remember hearing that and being like, that's exactly what God charged this woman to do in that biblical context, is to hear something false, not say you're going to hell, but just saying, that's not what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. It's a confrontation of the truth. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, this is addressed to elders and the qualifications of an elder and the description of what an elder do. One of the things outside of many, and this is the context here of elders, but I think in, in some ways this is for all Christians if you love the Lord and His Word. Elders, though, are commanded, must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught. They must, we must know sound doctrine so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And, the verse goes on, and also he must, he must be able to hold to sound doctrine, also to, the text says, also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's the role of an elder. If you cannot or will not, so those of you who aim to pursue ministry or are thinking about it maybe 20 years from now, maybe tomorrow, if you cannot or will not refute those who contradict God, you cannot be a pastor. You, can, you should not be a Bible study leader. Now, God doesn't want His people to be aimlessly argumentative and walking around with a theological chip on their shoulder. That's not what God talks about. It's not what God is wanting here. But if you're the person who always shrinks back from conflict because you're afraid that uh, you don't want to risk offending people or causing a disruption in a group where it won't grow. If you always shrink back from what song, sound doctrine claims, you clearly don't envision what the church is like, according to the Scriptures. Oftentimes, we see the church as like this beautiful, amazing cruise ship where everyone kind of gets, I've never been on a cruise ship, but I've, I've seen a lot of TV commercials and all that. Everyone kind of gets something that they want, an endless buffet for some a water park on top of a ship, sea dews that you can rent along the way, a peaceful cabin that you can escape the world. And that is how far too many people, especially in leadership, think about the church at large. It's like a giant cruise ship. The church is not called to be a giant cruise ship. It's called to be a battleship where heaven and hell hangs in the balance, where a, where a constant state until the Lord's return is happening, where a war is existing between good and evil. And if you can't defend good from evil. Well, this is the charge that Paul has given to Timothy. Go out, stand there, and defend what is right. Paul's language to Timothy has regular occurrences of, of war-like language. This is why Paul is so popular with athletes. It, it was clear that Paul was an athlete. I mean, the guy if he was around today, totally would have played basketball, totally would have, you know, loved to be a defensive end in football, smash mouth kind of mentality. He uses sports type language. He uses war type language. What is sports? What is war? It's aggression, hopefully against evil. And he tells Timothy to stay in the midst of a den of wolves and defeat them. What do you do when a wolf is encountering your child? 
you let it play. I grew up a mile north of one of the golf courses in Edmond, and one of our friend's dad loved to go around in a golf cart at night and shoot coyotes. I mean, what a hobby, you know? And they let him, because what will those coyotes do? They're kids running around. That's an expensive golf course that they don't want to be eaten alive. What do you do when something that does not belong invades? You get it out. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul earlier is talking to the Ephesian elders. So Acts 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. And then here in Timothy, he is again talking to the Ephesian elders. But go back to Acts 20, verse 28, when Paul was with the elders of this particular church, he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. What a charge. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What a charge. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, it's telling the elders here, therefore, when I leave, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then we have in our case, he's writing to Timothy, saying, Timothy, you're there, remain. The things that I told you would happen, they're happening. Now get to work. Friend, if you're in leadership, uh, in this church or in other contexts, my Air Force friends, who God willing will leave, (laughs) not too soon, but you will, and you go to another church, and some of you, God willing, will exercise your gifts of eldering or deaconing or serving in some particular area, if you're not willing to do this work, to spot the wolves, to stand down the wolves, to name the wolves, to characterize their error, to oppose them, then, friend, please go do something else. We have too many shepherds today who stick their finger in the wind and see where it blows. And when it blows against what God's Word says, they find the time to say that they don't want to argue about things or debate things or get caught up in stuff. They just want to love Jesus. They just want to reach people. And you wonder what they're reaching them for. The church gathers people to have our eyes set on the glory of God and his gospel. Paul is charging and commanding Timothy to confront false and strange teaching. Now, the big picture here in verses 3 through 4, how do we protect the church from false teaching? In this first point, we confront them. (laughs) I'm out of time, so I will pick up next week on verses 5 through 7, God willing, and these two verses, okay, uh, let, me, let me summarize. I did not, oh, here we go. These two verses today are, are a negative linguistically of what will come in verse 5 as a positive. The following couple of verses are positive in Paul's reaction. Paul's saying, stop those people because they're distracting the church, hurting the church from God's big plan. And so the work of God that Paul is discussing here was the arrangement God has made for people's redemption. And anything that covers that up or strips it away from God's redemptive plan, advancing his boldness by faith, Paul here is in fear that Ephesians might spend their time on on fruitless discussions of novel doctrines instead of spending their time on the glory of the Lord. So in closing, let me just say this. I pray desperately in my own life, and I pray for you and on behalf of you, 
that we would be so focused on God's truth that we would not only recognize error, but defend God's truth, that we would never be entertained by strange, irreverent, silly myths, because the Lord that we aspire to is the one that is in absolute truth. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for what your word says about you, and we thank you for what your word says to us. We pray that you would give us strength. Pray that you would give us courage. We pray that you would give our elders clarity and precision with your unadulterated gospel. God, we ask for you to continue to lead us in grace, mercy, and joy. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.